Chapter Thirteen of The Hall in the Grove by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Circle and Its Center. A quieter and yet perhaps a busier winter was never passed by certain of the dwellers in Centerville than that one in which had ushered in the Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle. It was surprising even to the leaders thereof to see how the circle widened. As the winter advanced and Merivale was conquered by some, endured by others, and laid on the shelf by all, another and less ponderous volume taking its place, many of the townspeople who had been least expected roused to interest and looked in on the monthly gatherings the organization having no cast-iron rules to hold it in check smiled approvingly on what were known as honorary members meaning a class of people many of them young and some older who not having leisure or inclination for the full course of actual study yet liked to come when they could or would you might use both words on occasion and be correct, and listen to the questions and answers, or essays, or lectures, or informal conversation as the case might be, putting in a word of suggestion, or inquiry, or actual help sometimes, and who yet were not bound by any rules to come when there was any other place which they preferred, or any other method of spending the evening which chanced to suit them better." Of this latter class were Jack Butler and his sisters Irene and Effie. Jack had been led to come at first from curiosity. He found it too much for even his cultured brain to solve the problem how such representations of the Antipodes as Professor Monteith and James Ward were held together by a common interest. So he came to see. And, being a really well-read youth, who had done at least a little hard studying while in college, he became in a degree interested, and so came often. His sister Irene came because Mrs. Fenton constantly urged her to do so, being moved by a benevolent desire to set that lady's enthusiasm off in another channel, and so save the world, or at least her father's house, from a flood of paintings. As for Effie, she complained that it was a wretchedly dull winter, and half the time there really wasn't any place to go to, unless one looked in on that stupid circle over which so many were going wild. For her part, she could not see what its attraction was. Meantime, the winter and early spring sped rapidly. Matters outside the circle had also prospered. Paul Adams, for instance, and the carpenter's shop in which he worked. He had assured himself that he would stick, you will remember, and had been true to his word. Never had Mr. Tucker known a more faithful workman. Prompt as the sun, every morning and afternoon quiet, busy, persistent, in his efforts to learn just what and how, this was the character that the boy had earned. So unlike that which was confidently expected of him, that his employer watched him at first with suspicious, and then with puzzled eyes. "'What in all nature can have come over the boy, I don't know.' he would say in confidence to his wife as they sat together in the pause between the day and the night which the hard-working carpenter allotted to his own hearthstone he was the laziest loafingest fellow that ever lived and breathed in this town and that's saying a good deal for whether we get our member elected this time or not we've got our share of folks who have nothing else to do but loaf and talk it over 
and I used to think that when Paul got old enough to vote, he'd join that set if he didn't do a good deal worse, and go on talking and loafing to the end of the chapter. But he's got to be the stiddiest kind of a fellow, don't go nowhere of nights. I asked the widow particularly, and she says he is next to never out of nights at all, and then to some kind of a society that he belongs. I don't like that. Societies for boys of that sort are apt to mean mischief. But his meets only once a month, and he gets back inside of ten o'clock every time, and I'm beat if I know what has come over him. Mrs. Tucker sewed away steadily on a pair of pants she was mending, fitted the patch neatly, gave a skilful twitch to it at the corner, and then rounded the corner like an engineer before she suggested a meek solution. Maybe he's got religion. Mr. Tucker poked the coals decisively and shook his head. No, I thought of that, and watched him, and hoped with all my might that was the thing, and he had got turned round for good and all. But it ain't nothing of that kind. He don't go to church more than he ever did. His mother sits there alone, you see, every Sunday, and he never comes inside the prayer meeting. No, it ain't anything of that kind, and I don't know what it is. He doesn't waste his earnings, that's sure. Spends them as fast as he gets them on the house and his mother. He's bought her a new lamp, and a new chair, and made her a wash-bench, and got her a new dress, and I don't know what all. A dozen little things that don't take much money, but show which way his thoughts is going. The widow, she cries about every time I see her, over some new thing he has got her. She cries for joy about half the time nowadays. It all looks well in the boy, but I'm puzzled to make it out. I watch him as close as a cat could watch a mouse. The other day I caught him working away, planing a board, and muttering to himself as if there was a dozen folks around him. Says I to myself, My fine fellow, you're mad at something at last. He's as good-natured, you know, as the day is long. Says I to myself, If I could catch what you was muttering about, I'd maybe be able to make out what wind is blowing you along, and where the harbour will be likely to be. I listened for quite a spell, and he kept on like mad, and every time he got to the end of one lingo he'd look back behind him a second, and then turn around and go to planing and muttering again. I couldn't make anything of it, and I didn't know but the fellow was going crazy. At last I see that he had some kind of a book blocked open with two bits of board, and he kept looking at it and muttering, and planing and looking and muttering." "'Why don't you have a talk with him?' suggested the wife, who had by this time conquered her patch, and was hemming it down with neat stitches. "'About what? I don't know what to say to the boy. He does everything on the square, and is by all odds the best boy I have had around for years, though to be sure that isn't saying much. I haven't got any fault to find. I'm just puzzled to know what has turned him around. I did ask him what he was muttering about, and he said—' Oh, he was running all over the dates for the next circle. Whatever that meant, and then he got off a lot of stuff, figures and names, regular jaw-breaking fellows. I couldn't make anything of it, and there's nothing in that that would turn a boy like Paul Adams around, and I'm beat. Equally felt, but more silent, was the astonishment of Mr. Ward over his son James. He was not quite so bewildered, it is true, for he plainly saw that the CLSC was the talisman which had apparently charmed his son, 
and being a man who had a sincere respect for learning, he was gravely glad over not only the result as shown in James's steady attention to business and quiet evenings, but the producing cause thereof. His chief bewilderment arose from the fact that, having listened carefully to the essays and reviews that were read on a certain evening when the CLSC gave a general invitation to its friends to attend, he confessed to himself that what James saw in all those names and dates to interest him was more than he could imagine. From that time forth he was more bewildered, and had more respect for learning than ever. He believed in his honest, sad heart that James was becoming learned, and there were whole evenings when he sat in silence behind the dining-room stove toasting his slippered feet, and pondering, not over the day's accounts, but as to whether it was possible that the boy's mother knew of the turn which he had taken, and was glad. What about Joe? Well, that in some form was the question which this father often asked himself anxiously. Joe was not a member of the literary society, was not interested in their books nor their plans. He grumbled constantly over their infatuation, and apparently believed with all firmness that both his brother and Paul had been ruined. At the same time, apparently from the force of circumstances, he changed his course of life. With neither James nor Paul to help him go astray, it proved not to be so pleasant a path as he had trodden before. Casting about him for something with which to while away the hours, he found that his father was entirely willing to furnish him with employment so in a fitful and rather exasperating fashion he also became a clerk in the store. True, he absented himself on the slightest provocation, and when present oftener lounged on the counters and whistled than he did anything else. Yet even this was better than the life of entire lounging which he had heretofore followed, and his father recognizing it was really trying very hard to be patient with him, harder than Joe dreamed, and the other interested lookers-on trembled, lest after all Joe should suddenly slip away from this slight hold, and go hopelessly astray. "'We have caught the leader,' Mrs. Fenton said anxiously one evening. "'But the other seems bent on being his own leader, and going to destruction in spite of us.' And she counseled young Robert to be more earnest in his efforts to win a hold on the young man, who still thought him cuter than any of the older ones. Dr. Monteith made almost no reply to Mrs. Fenton's anxious remark, but carried a grave, thoughtful face, and spent a longer time on his knees that evening than usual. Dr. Monteith had by no means given up Joseph Ward. Because the literary society had failed to reach him, it by no means followed that nothing would. What he earnestly wished was, that he could have asked every member of that CLSC to make a special subject of prayer of young Joseph Ward, but some of them would hardly have understood what he meant. So he bided his time, and said a few thoughtful words to Caroline, and Mrs. Watson Bates, and young Marshall. During the sunny days that ushered in the spring that season, there was a sensation among the members of the circle. Its first meeting was to be held at Dr. Monteith's, and, behold, a day or two before the appointed evening, each member received a little note from their president, stating that after the general exercises he proposed a social reunion, during which time certain friends who were specially interested in the CLSC would be introduced and talk with them 
and it would give him great pleasure if every member of the circle would take special pains to be present. No further intimation was given in the note, but it got out, as such things will, and fluttered through the membership, that they were actually to meet the inspirer and instigator of the Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle, for that matter the instigator of Chautauqua itself. Moreover, it was by degrees discovered that the invitations had not been confined to the members of the circle, but were scattered quite generally through the community. "'It is nothing more or less than a large party,' explained Mrs. Fenton to her husband, her eyes dancing with delight. "'A gathering of all the literary and most of the fashionable people in town to meet the members of our circle, among whom none are more prominent than Paul Adams and Mrs. Chester's Caroline. I believe those two know more about Merivale than Dr. Monteith himself does. I do think that man is the sharpest and at the same time wisest planner I ever knew. Why? questioned her graver but equally satisfied husband. Because he doesn't know so much about Merivale as they do? Among the invited guests was Mrs. Chester herself, and thereby occurred one of those curious incidents which are liable to happen in a town where distinctly marked grades of society exist, and somebody succeeds in mixing them. Mrs. Chester, by the way, was all unaware of the hold that the circle had gotten upon her second girl. She knew indeed that Caroline belonged to some sort of a society, and was dabbling with books that were much beyond her comprehension, and that Mrs. Chester in her own world, among her chosen friends, did not fail to speak of and deplore this as a thing that was likely to unsettle Caroline's wits, and give her false ambitions and vain aims. But she had no idea, how should she, who the persons were that were engaged in helping to unsettle her. She had heard, indeed, that Mrs. Fenton was interesting herself, and that the ward boys had reformed, or were at least much improved, but neither Mrs. Fenton nor the ward boys came into her world very frequently. With the former, you will remember, she had only that sort of calling acquaintance which resulted in an exchange of calls once in six months, perhaps, sometimes even more rarely than that. As for the ward boys, they occasionally brought home her purchases from their father's store. So when Mrs. Chester heard of the efforts toward literature as associated with such as these young men and her Caroline, she smiled pityingly and said, "'Mrs. Fenton was a well-meaning little woman, but it was a pity she tried in such wild ways to do good.' And then she dismissed the whole subject from her mind. An invitation to an evening's entertainment at Dr. Monteith's was, however, a matter that she could appreciate, and she made preparation with evident satisfaction. The professor's house was rarely opened for large gatherings. Caroline, she said to that maiden, you may leave the parlors until afternoon and finish that wrapper. Let the china closet go this week. I shall want your help elsewhere tomorrow and I want Miss Celia's dress pressed out and the ribbon run into the puffs again. You may do that this afternoon. I shall need a great many little things done tomorrow, and shall want these other matters out of the way. Oh, by the by, tomorrow is your regular evening out, isn't it? You will have to make some different arrangement for this week. I am going out, and shall want you to remain at home with the children. I don't like to trust them with Hannah. She is growing so careless." Then did Caroline stand transfixed with a feeling very like dismay. 
Stay with the children! Was she not the one appointed to read the main paper of the evening? Yet at the same time, was she not Mrs. Chester's hired help? Had not that lady engaged and paid her for time, evenings included? Had she not a right to command even this evening of evenings, if she would? Swift thinking did Caroline, and the conclusion was that she answered simply, Yes, ma'am, in almost her usual composure of tone, and turned away without giving her mistress so much as a hint of the heavy cross that she had laid upon her. Yet the engagement upon which she had so heartily entered must not be left thus. It involved a brief, carefully worded note which Caroline contrived during the morning to send to Dr. Monteith's. "'What an idea!' exclaimed that gentleman, after a hasty reading. "'Look here!' to his guest, with whom conversation had been suspended long enough to read the note. "'This is the young woman of whom I told you. She thinks she cannot come to the circle to-morrow evening, because her mistress has an engagement. Preposterous! Half of my idea is to get her here to read her essay before certain ones who need to hear it. This thing must be arranged. What is the way to do it?' One result of this talk was a morning call. Mrs. Chester heard the bell from her dressing-room, and opened the door to say to Caroline, as she passed through the hall, "'You may say that I am engaged this morning. I cannot see any one.' So Caroline, flushing over Dr. Monteith's cordial greeting, made haste to say that Mrs. Chester was specially engaged that morning, and—' "'But we haven't called to see Mrs. Chester,' interrupted the doctor. "'Our call was, I may say, almost entirely on you.' whereupon he introduced to Caroline the name which was so associated with one of the dearest pleasures and the highest hopes of her life, that to see him and hear him speak and shake hands with him was a greater honour than she had actually even dreamed of. That she was intensely, almost painfully embarrassed for a moment was evident. That she was quick-witted was equally so, for in an instant, though her cheeks were the colour of the carnation pinks on the window, she said, with a quick deprecating look at her trim kitchen apron, throwing back the door of the parlour as she spoke, "'Well, if you have really called to see me, I will go and get on a clean apron.' And she actually did slip away to don a trim white apron with pockets, and possibly to put a touch of cooling water on her glowing cheeks. Then she returned her quiet self, and sustained her share of the bright conversation which followed. "'Why, I don't know.' she said thoughtfully, in answer to their inquiry. I can hardly tell you how I get the time to do the regular amount of reading. I have to economize. There have been days when I was hard-pressed and thought I was going to fail, but some fortunate lull in the round of work was almost sure to come in an unexpected way, and I would push through. Then there are certain duties which fall to my share that I find can be attended to while I am actually engaged on something else." I've proved the falsity of the idea that the mind cannot be occupied by two opposite strains of thought at the same time," she added laughingly. For instance, I committed long passages of events condensed from Merivale while I was setting the table for dinner. I suppose I must have thought where the plates and the castor and the napkins were, for they came into line all right, and I know I thought about Coriolanus and Cincinnatus and Claudius and all those—memorized those lists, you know. Sometimes, too, when I was drying the china or rubbing the silver, I would pin my little pink book open with a fork, 
and make my brains keep my hands company. In that way I got through with Augustus Caesar and Tiberius and Caligula. Thinking of it afterwards, Caroline was amazed to recall how many items she had given the callers concerning herself, how fully she had been betrayed into explaining her plans and hopes, yes, and fears. It was not her nature to be communicative with people in general. She could only attribute it to the delicate way in which the two gentlemen evidenced their interest in her progress. As Dr. Monteith arose to go, he asked if Mrs. Chester would see him later in the day as a matter of convenience to himself. He wished to consult her on an important subject. When Caroline gave this message and awaited her answer, Mrs. Chester arose from her chair in astonishment. "'Dr. Monteith, is he in the house now? I will see him, of course. Why should I not? Why, Caroline, I heard no bell. Who admitted him?' "'I did, ma'am. You will remember that as I passed through the hall, you directed me to say to whoever it was that you were engaged.' "'But that was nearly, if not quite, half an hour ago. That ring of the bell surely could not have brought Dr. Monteith.' "'Yes'm, it was Dr. Monteith and his friend.' and pray where have they been all this time in the parlor ma'am i gave your message and the doctor said he would like to see me a few moments and just now he directed me to inquire if you would see him later well declared mrs chester perplexity and annoyance struggling together on her face this is certainly most extraordinary but she went downstairs immediately to confront dr monteith if you had been in her parlour that afternoon you might have heard her talking in a somewhat excited tone to her intimate and somewhat confidential friend mrs bacon i never heard of anything more absurd in my life fancy me standing before dr monteith he declining to take a seat on the plea that he had already overstayed his time and petitioning that my hired girl might be allowed to attend the social gathering at his house to-morrow evening I was so amazed that I really did not know what to say. I believe I blushed and stammered and acted like a girl in her teens. My dear Mrs. Bacon, what are we coming to? What are those ridiculous people trying to do? And what am I to do? I couldn't, of course, refuse Dr. Monteith's request, but I wondered at his impudence in repeating his invitation to me. Does he suppose that I wish to mingle socially with my hired help? oh well my dear friend and mrs bacon's voice was one of those soft soothing ones which remind you of the purring of a favorite kitten it is a benevolent scheme of some sort which these good people have on hand they really think they are helping the poor girls and boys who have had no other chances and possibly they are though it may be in a mistaken way still i think the intention is good I am told that they propose to greatly encourage the members of their little society by letting them read some extracts, or something of that sort, exhibiting their acquirements, you know, after the fashion of the school exhibitions of the olden time. Dr. Monteith is peculiar, we are all aware. But then, he can afford to be, for, with all his peculiarities, he is so grand a man. I don't think I would mind if I were you." Caroline is uncommonly bright, I think, for a girl in her sphere, and really I don't wonder that a man like Dr. Monteith is tempted to interest himself in her a little. In her way, Mrs. Bacon, who was about as clear-brained as the aforesaid kitten, did a certain amount of good. 
she rarely stroked fur, either her own or others, the wrong way, and her claws, if she had any, were so effectually hidden in velvet as never to do any active damage. What damage she did to society was of a passive nature. She succeeded in so quieting Mrs. Chester's nerves that her voice was almost pleasant as she said to Caroline the next morning, turning back as she was leaving the breakfast-room, as though it were an afterthought, by the way caroline dr monteith tells me he is interested in your literary aspirations and proposes to give your reading class or whatever it is a lift this evening i wasn't aware of anything of the kind of course i would not deprive you of the pleasure of being present i will make some other arrangement for the children and caroline although her face flushed deeply was able to express her thanks and felt them too she sang over her work that morning. End of chapter 13